We are in the third week of a series here that we're calling Life, Money, Hope, the last week. And one thing that I am learning is true from life experience, and I think that maybe you would agree with me. And while it it might not apply to all of us, I, I think it affects every one of us at least in some way to some degree, and that is that we tend to put our hope, to put our faith and our trust in money. You know, it just happens, you know, that you and I are so vulnerable to the lure of money that it's easy for money to find its way into the center of everything that we are and everything we hope for to the point where it all comes down to money and money becomes our absolute everything. And because of that, I believe uh, that we've got a number of people living in fear right now. I mean, especially as we looked at, especially as we look at what's happened in our country over these past couple of years, a once untouchable economy has developed some holes in it. You know, there's a weakness there that hasn't been present in a while. You know, many of, of you have lost jobs and earnings. People right here in our own church, in our, in our own community, maybe you've got a family member that, that's going through a difficult time. And while there are some indications that maybe everything is beginning to slowly improve, you're not too sure about it yet. Because the rumor at your work is that they're still talking layoffs or, you know, the industry that you're a part of, uh, some say that that industry hasn't been affected by all of it yet. And, you know, your house is still for sale or you keep filling out all the applications and hearing things like, you know what, you're our number two. You know, if it doesn't work out with this first one, we'll call you. And whether you admit it or not, you know, it's during difficult times that it's easy for us to put our, our hope and our trust in money. And we need money, right? I mean, we can all acknowledge that. I mean, you need money to live and to survive. You know, we trust money. You know, we hold it tightly and and it hurts when it slips or when it's taken away. I think to the point that for many of us, money has become a God of sorts. You know, a small g. It's become like a God to us. We look to money to do the things for us that God in heaven was intended to. Or was meant to do for us. So, you know, we look to money for significance. We say, you know, I'll finally be somebody when I make this much money per year. You know, I know when I finally arrive to that level, well, then I will have accomplished it. Or, or we look to money for, for security. You know, if I can get this much money in my savings account, or if I can get this much money in my retirement or into my, into my emergency fund, well, then I'll be set to go. Then I know that I'm secure. Or we look to money for significance. You know, if I can just make this much money, then I'll be somebody. You know, we look to it uh, for our identity. You know, if I can get this house, this car, these clothes, you know, people will really like me. You know, we may not bow down to carved images or statues here in the United States of America, but for us, money has become an idol of sorts, and we look to money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, this is one of the many statements that Jesus made about money. Jesus talked about money and possessions a lot. He talked about money and possessions more than he talked about any other subject, even combined. You know, why did he put so much emphasis on money and possessions? Well, here's what I think it is that I believe that Jesus knew that there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. Jesus knows that money is God's greatest competition for our hearts. And that's what this series all comes down to. It's not just simply a series about money and how to spend it or how the church can get more of it. It's that God wants your heart. 
God wants your heart first and foremost. He wants to be at the very center of your life. And Jesus wants our hope and our strength to be found in God. God is not looking simply for donors for his kingdom. He's not looking for philanthropists for his kingdom. Instead, God is ready for you to say that you trust him, that that you are completely sold out to him, that you have everything invested into him, every bit of your life, that that you are invested in God 100%, that you can say, I am going all in when it comes to my relationship with God and that nothing will stand in the way of this. You know, it's not only to be able to say that you trust God for your own personal benefit, but that you are so filled with a vision for eternity that you wouldn't dream of not investing your money, your time, and your prayers where they truly matter most. And so over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about several principles as it applies to to money. We, we, We talked about it in week one, the principle that God owns and that we simply manage. That everything belongs to God. That He has given to us a portion and His calling on our lives is to manage those gifts, to manage those blessings. Last week we talked about the principle that God provides and we sacrifice. That God will always provide for everything that we need and our responsibility is because He is a generous God that we are to live generously to and that we are to sacrifice. David said, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord which cost me nothing. I will not offer sacrifices that that cost me nothing. He has called us to that standard because of the standard that God lives by in giving us uh, Jesus. You know, uh, it cost him something. And to this morning, I want to talk about this principle that God supplies and we trust. God supplies, we trust. And that's where we start. Do you trust God? Can you say with all of your heart that you trust that God will provide for every need you have. That's what I want to look at. If you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and to turn to 1 Kings chapter 17. I had to dust off my pages a little bit getting to 1 Kings. It's a, an Old Testament historical book. It's, it's kind of left of the center of your Bible. I can't tell you exactly what page number it's on in your Bible. But if you go to 1 Kings chapter 17, it's here that we meet a man by the name of Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet. He prophesied that there would be a drought in Israel, and there was. He was right. And as a result of the drought, uh, scriptures revealed to us that there was this devastating famine. And during this time, Elijah explained to the people that the reason for the drought, the reason God was withholding rain, was because the people had been worshiping a false god. Now, this is an important connection here and something that I want you to see right as we start. The false god the people had been worshiping is the false god known at that time as Baal, B-A-A-L. The people had been worshiping this false god known as Baal. The god Baal, this false god Baal, was the god of rain. And people believe that Baal provided the rain. Interesting, huh? I mean, do you see here what God is doing? God is withholding rain from the people because they had been worshiping this false god of rain. I mean, should we be surprised at this at all? I mean, think about it with it just as it applies to us today. I mean, some people will pray that God will make them wealthy, that God will make them rich, you know, for God to give them a bigger house or a nicer car and then reason it all by saying, well, why not? I mean, God wants me to be wealthy. God wants me to be rich. You know, God wants me to prosper. I mean, doesn't God want me to have these things? But there's something important to see here that God is not in the habit of handing out idols, God is not in the habit of handing out idols. He's not a big fan of them. And the first commandment says that you can't have any other gods before me. 
You can't have idols. God is not going to give you something that is likely to become way too important in your life, more important than him. And we really shouldn't be too surprised when money becomes so important to us that God is forced to begin withdrawing some of that blessing in our lives because it's become way too important. Now, I realize that might make some of you a little uncomfortable, that kind of a thought. And this whole idea that even our, our, our current financial situation in America might have something to do with the fact that as a nation, we've increasingly turned our hearts more away from Jesus and more and more towards money as our source of salvation. Do you think there could be a connection? I think it's possible. You know, here, the, the authorities in Israel were out to kill Elijah. They, they didn't like what he had to say. They blamed him for having something to do with this famine. And that's where we pick it up here in 1 Kings chapter 17. And knowing his life is in danger, God, God offers a plan uh, to help Elijah get out of town and run for safety. Verse 2, 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here. Turn eastward and, ha- and hide in the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, if I'm Elijah, I can hear the sarcastic tone in my head asking questions like, A brook, huh? Seriously. You're, you're telling me to wander out into the wilderness that you're going to provide a brook and that you're going to provide birds. You're going to provide ravens uh, to feed me with every single day. Seems a little bizarre. To be real honest, God's plan doesn't make a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense because God was sending Elijah away from the Jordan River. There is a drought. There is a famine taking place. If there's any water in the country at all, it's most likely lying in the bed of the Jordan River. And God says, turn from the Jordan River, the source of water, and I want you to go into this wilderness to this place called the Kareth Ravine. I realize you may not understand the plan, but just do it. Verse 5. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. Now notice those first words there in verse 5. So he did what the Lord told him. Elijah did exactly what God told him to do. He obeyed, he trusted. I think there's a challenge right here for us in that It's just as simple as this. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. Trust God even when it doesn't make sense. As crazy as it may sound. You know, I was thinking this past week, we've got a group of people scheduled to leave for Haiti in a couple of weeks. And it would be natural for some to have some doubts and even some fears about going right now. It was frightening enough to go before the earthquake took place and now expectations and and preparations and, and everything that, you know, people are just going to expect to see when they get there. It, it's totally changed. And, and some of you are really holding on to God right now, you know, saying, God, I need you to be my faith. I need you to be my strength and my, and, and my source. And, and, and the, the awkward thing is that your neighbor thinks you're crazy, you know, and, and your mom is looking at you saying you're being sensitive. You're not thinking about your own family. I've, re- I've received some emails this past week from, from some in our church who are praying through some big-time, God-sized ideas right now. Thoughts like, God, if you ask me to adopt the child from there, I might, ever, I might consider that I've never thought about that in my entire life. Or, 
Or would I step away from my career for a few months and actually go and live there just so I can be a part of that relief work? You know, again, someone else might tell you you're nuts. But if God has a plan for your life, keep listening. It may not make sense to others, but if it makes sense to God, He'll help it make sense to you. And you can just trust Him. If God's leading you to do something, you can trust Him. You know, when it comes to money and when it comes to trusting God and giving, here's the challenge for us. Much of what the Bible has to say about money doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. Let's just acknowledge that here right now. It doesn't make sense. You know, it might not even make sense to you. For example, the Bible says, it is much more blessed to give than to receive. How crazy does that sound compared to how we live today? You know, compared to, you know, what we see on television or what the world speaks to us. I mean, how many of us can say that we truly embrace, you know, believe and live by that truth? You know, when you think about it, much of what the Bible has to say about anything is countercultural. You know, because it's so countercultural, we're so quick to question. Again, as we discussed last week, the book of Nehemiah, excuse me, the book of Malachi says that if you give to God, that he will return to you in abundance these, these great blessings. He'll take care of you in many different ways. And we hear that and we nod our, nod our head and it's pretty and, and nice make a great bookmark, you know. And, but do we believe it, you know? Do we, do we choose to believe it? You know, we've even discounted the Old Testament teaching of the tithe because, well, it's Old Testament. You know, it, it doesn't count anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. And so we'll do whatever is necessary to convince ourselves that it isn't important to give and that generosity isn't commanded by God. You know, I'll give my time. I'll give my songs. I'll take a seat. I might even serve occasionally, you know, but you talk about money. I check out. That's my business. It's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's a trust issue. And the sad reality is that some of you will never get it. It's the saddest reality is that some of you will never get it. You'll never completely trust God. God wants your heart. He he wants to be the first priority in your life. It has nothing to do what he can get from you when it comes to money. It has everything to do what he wants to do for you in your life. What he wants to see happen in your life is you trust him more and more with every bit of who you are. Proverbs chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord your God with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. It includes financial ways. Acknowledge Him. And as the Bible says, He will make your path straight. So trust God when it doesn't make sense. You know, this plan didn't make sense to Elijah, but he trusted, he obeyed, and then God supplied. Verse 7. Sometime later, that brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And so God sent Elijah away from the Jordan River into the wilderness where he promised a brook that would supply for all of his needs. But time passes, the brook dries up, the water is now gone. You know, God's original plan didn't make sense. You know, and why would you leave the Jordan at a time like this? And Elijah had to have thought this, but he obeyed. He followed God to the Kareth Ravine, but the brook, according to scripture, has now dried up. There's no more water. And I wonder how many of you, like Elijah, are standing next to a dry brook right now in your life. I mean, you feel like you've been obedient to God. You feel like you tried things His way. Maybe you you took a new job and you moved the family to a new place, but it hasn't gone as planned. And the brook is starting to run dry. Or you've stepped out for the first time in your life 
and you started giving. You know, you said, God, I want to be generous. I want to trust you. I want to sacrifice. And so you started giving, you know, and you want to trust the promises of God. But rather than get easier, it has gotten extremely difficult. Nothing has gone as planned. And the brook is running dry. Or you trusted God with your life. You've surrendered your heart and your life to him, maybe even done so recently. But, but since that has happened, there's been a job loss. The business hasn't gone as planned. For the first time in your life, you're worried about how you're going to pay next month's bills. And you're standing next to a dry brook right now, wondering if God is seeing what's happening there. You know, God, I hope you're noticing the fact that the water level is beginning to drop rapidly. And you're waiting for God to do something. You know, and it's, it's in times like these that you find out if you really trust. It's in times like these where, where, where trust takes on a whole new meaning. You know, the challenge becomes to trust God, you know, even when the future is uncertain. Even when you don't know what tomorrow's hold. I mean, you're standing next to your book. It's drying up. You're out of options. You're completely, fully dependent on God. And you're saying, you know, with all the faith you can find, God, I'm going to wait and I'm going to trust you, even though the future is pretty uncertain now, but I'm not going to lie. I'm scared. I'm terrified. I don't know how much longer I'm going to hold this course. The late Henry Nowen, who was a priest, wrote a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And, and in the book, he talks about some friends of his who were trapeze artists. Don't you wish you had friends who were trapeze artists? You know, I'd like to have some trapeze artist kind of friends. That'd be, that'd be kind of fun. Well, in the book, he talks about the fact that these trapeze artists have a very unique relationship. It's a, it's a relationship that involves high trust. And this is important, especially in the relationship between the flyer and the catcher. All right, two very important roles when it comes to being a trapeze artist. The flyer, of course, is the person who lets go and flies through the air. The catcher is the one who is responsible to catch the flyer. Now, now one explains that there comes this point when the flyer is flying high above the crowd and, and the flyer must simply let go. All right, now that just makes my hands sweat just even thinking about that with the, the nerves that I have when it comes to the heights. But at this point, the flyer's most important job is to reach out his hands to be as still as possible and then get this, and wait to be caught. To wait to be caught. Now that goes against every natural instinct you and I would have as we were flying through the air to simply wait to be caught. But once the release has taken place, the worst thing that a flyer can do is to try and catch the catcher. Because when you try and catch the catcher, you put yourself in a lot of trouble. You have to reach out your hands and be still with confidence and trust that the strong arms of the catcher will catch you. Now, I understand where this might be where some of you find yourselves this morning. The brook has run dry. You're the flyer you've released to let go. And everything in you says panic. But can I encourage you this morning to trust the catcher? to just wait to be caught. Just trust. Reach out your hands and let the catcher catch you. You know, in verse 9, God gives Elijah some additional instructions for what comes next. And remember, there's no water left. Verse 9, he says, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. God sends Elijah into enemy territory. 
He's sending him to a brand new place. He says, you will arrive in this foreign place. When you get there, there'll be a widow. She'll supply you with the water and the food you need. Now, this isn't just any widow. This is a Gentile widow, meaning she's not Jewish. Elijah's a Jewish man. That has big implications. But she's going to take care of Elijah's needs. So we have a foreign country. We have a widow, and not only just a widow, but this is a Jewish widow. Now, this goes against every norm and every custom established in Israel at this time. But again, it doesn't seem like a good plan. The ravens made more sense than this plan. You know, Elijah could have come up with all sorts of reasons to turn around and go straight back to the Jordan River. You're thinking there has to be a better way, but look at what the next verse says. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10. So he went to Zarephath. Three words there say it all. So he went. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? So Elijah obeys. He approaches the gate. There's a, a woman there gathering sticks, just as God explained to him. He, he said, hey, any chance I could get a bottle of aquafina or something? Remember, there's a drought taking place. There's a famine. Water has now become a very valuable commodity. Verse 11, as she was going to get it, he called, hey, and, and bring me a piece of bread too. You know, bring me your life savings while you're at it. I'll take every bit of it. You know, talk about asking for it all. This lady has nothing left. I mean, she's a widow. The conditions are horrible. Verse 12, look at her reply. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I am gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now talk about a bit of a Debbie Downer right here. You know, I mean, they've just met each other, you know, put things in perspective though, doesn't it for us? I mean, most of us, if not everyone here today, has never known poverty like this. Now, maybe I'm incorrect in that, but the truth is that for the most part, I don't think we realize how, how rich and blessed we really are today. Look at it this way. Many of you have a house, all right? But let's take it one step further. If you have a house for your car to sleep in at nighttime, all right, so that it doesn't have to sit outside in the rain and the ice and the sleet and everything, then according to the rest of the world, comparing to the rest, compared to the rest of the world, you're very rich. I'm very rich. Let's take it one step further. If you have a house for your car, but you have so much stuff that your car has to sleep outside at night on the driveway, underneath the stars and the rain and everything then according, compared to the rest of the world, you're very rich. The, the, the truth is that many of us could live on, on welfare and, and food stamps and compared to the rest of the world, no matter, as, as difficult as it may be, we're very rich. One statistic said, if you make $30,000 a year, you today are living in the top 1% of wage earners in the world. Top 1% even at $30,000 a year. I mean, when was the last time you wondered at the beginning of the day whether you would have anything to eat at the end of the day? You know, sometimes we need a little perspective. I mean, and we get that in this woman. And, and I want you to see why. This woman has nothing. She has resigned herself to the fact that she and her son are going to die, which really causes me to stop and ask a question of God and this story. And that is, why this woman? I mean, of all of the people in such a desperate and devastating time, why would God choose this woman? Why this poor widow? 
I mean, it seems like there have been so many other options. You know, the, the, the rich guy on the other side of town who has these great reserves of water and everything. I mean, why didn't God choose that person? Why would God say to this widow, this poor widow, you be generous? I mean, if anyone had the right to refuse, it was her. And I think there's a part of us that wants to be that type of person when our, when our, when our lives get a little tight. You know, I mean, there's this sense in us, well, you know, where we say my income has drastically changed or, or we're going through this season in life right now or, or we just don't really know where everything's headed. So I, I get a pass on this whole generosity thing. I, I, don't, I don't have to get into this trust thing. Well, I think God chose this woman here to serve Elijah, to serve God, to teach us a couple of lessons. I think one of them is just simply this, that God expects everyone to give something. He's not looking for an amount. He's looking for an attitude, a heart of generosity. He expects everyone to give something. And, and our circumstances do not afford us the right to transfer our trust from God to ourselves or to money when things get difficult. God wants us to trust him no matter the circumstances. He calls us to this life of generosity no matter what may happen. God expects everyone to give something. My wife and I, we were laughing uh, this weekend about how we are really making a name for ourselves here in the Noblesville community. Uh, kind of funny reason why. About a week and a half ago, Jenny was out in the community at a bookstore for a, a story time. And she had our one-and-a-half-year-old Kate with her and our four-year-old Luke. And, and they were there for the story. Everything was going great. No problems, nothing. And then Kate, our one-and-a-half-year-old, just puked everywhere. No warning at all, no cries, nothing. She just, she was unloading right there in this bookstore. If you're a parent, you know, and you've been through those types of circumstances and situations before, like logic just goes out of the window, you know, and you just start grabbing things and, and just, just, you get that child and you want to get out of there as quickly as possible because you're embarrassed, you know, and people are running and screaming, you know, moms are grabbing their kids and diving away from the germs and everything. Uh, well, anyway, we were kind of laughing about it that night of, you know, hey, look, look what I got to do today. You got to go out to lunch with somebody. Uh, you know, I, I got to do the puke thing, you know, out in public. Well, last Sunday, uh, I went off to the basketball game, uh, the, the, the team here from Genesis I play with on Sunday afternoons, and we were like one minute from game time and getting ready to head out on the floor. And I had Luke, our four-year-old, and Joel, our six-year-old with me. And with no warning, Luke, our four-year-old, just, just came untied. I mean, he just started puking everywhere. And, and it was red. And one guy said, oh, is that blood? And I'm like, no, that's red velvet cake from lunch that we had today. And, uh, I mean, he, it was just like this open faucet. It's like, man, kid, how much do you have in you? You know, I grabbed my sweatshirt. It was all over me. It was all over Joel. It was all over Luke and everything in the floor. And, you know... You know, I, I just, I guess I was thankful that I got to experience a little bit. And I will say my kids are not in the nursery today, by the way. They are home, you know, just to make sure that it is completely out of their system. So you don't have, I see people getting up and running to get their kids out of the nursery right now. But, uh, but anyway, you know, in, in that moment, you don't expect people to help you because it's one thing to clean up your own kid's puke, but to clean up another kid's puke, I mean, that's just nasty, you know. It's like, come on, kid, get a grip or whatever. But, but anyway, you know, in, in that situation in my wife, there were just people who are willing to step in. We didn't expect anyone to do anything, but there were generous people in both situations who, who stepped up and, uh, and helped us to get through it. There's a point. When it comes to giving and generosity, God expects everyone to give something. You know, as I've been, you know, just reflecting on and thinking about it and praying for our church, you know, I can come up with a number of reasons why I love this church. One, one is that I love that this church is full of generous people. 
you know, we, we, this is a generous church, and I believe that our reputation in the past, and I believe that our reputation for the future will be generosity, that that is what we will be known for. God, what can we do to further advance your kingdom? And I know that a number of you have given generously and sacrificially over the years, uh, and that's pretty exciting, especially as you look at the year that we just came through as a nation. I mean, I have friends that are in churches right now where they've drastically cut budgets and had to to lay off staff, but with careful planning, you know, a lot of prayer and, and, and your generosity. I mean, we just kept moving ahead. I mean, 2009 was a great year for Genesis Church. Revenue was greater than expenses. You gave us a church almost $470,000 this past year, and, and we've taken steps to be a generous church. I'm just really excited to say that, that God is working here, and, and he's helping us to be generous. And we had over 214 different gifts from different households in this past year. Uh, There were big gifts and small gifts. It it doesn't matter. Every single gift counts. Every gift matters. It it all adds up. And and God, he expects everyone to give something. And and I just can't help but wonder, as as we get into 2010 now, what can we do this year? You know, what, what does God want to do through this church in this time and in this place to further advance his kingdom here in Noblesville and, and around, you know, all around us? What, what can we do next? Because when you give, you're saying, God, I trust you. When we give as a church, we're saying, God, we trust you. It, it's not just about me. It's about your work. You know, there, there's another lesson that we learned from this woman in the story, and that is that God will use whatever you give. And, and that leads to another excuse that sometimes we make. It's like, well... I can only give this much, and because I can only give this much, I'm not going to give it because it in no way adds up to what that person is giving. God doesn't view things that way. It's not about the amount. God owns everything. It's not the amount. It's what God can do with what's given sacrificially. For those of you who gave this past year, uh, you were a part of some incredible work here at Genesis. I I wanted to tell you just about a few things that I was reflecting on this past week. Uh, Looking at our attendance, for example, looking at our growth and the number of people that God is sending into this building, the influence that he's giving us right here in Hamilton County. We, We averaged this past year around 350 people on Sunday mornings. Now, that's pretty exciting compared to, in 2008, our average attendance was around 270 people. And so in one year, we're up about 80. But here's where it gets a little crazy. Since September of this year, we have gone over 400 people 10 times, and we've gone almost to 500 on a couple of occasions, including just before Thanksgiving. And so God is increasing our territory. He's increasing our influence. Uh, He's working through you to reach others. Now, while it's good and exciting, I know that some of you are feeling the effects, especially when we really fill up this room, you know, during the second service on Sunday mornings. And I I just want to acknowledge that we are aware of the fact that it's getting a little crowded at times. That's why we we, we encourage you to to think about the first service to make room for more. Uh, We acknowledge and realize that the parking lot can get a little congested from time to time. And we just want you to know that we're on top of these things. We're, we're praying about these things. Uh, the, the children's ministry area is getting full. It's requiring more volunteers and creative use of space. We want to be good stewards of what God has given to us. And we're seeing the growth in our high school ministry and our middle school ministry. You know, this past year, we celebrated uh, great life change and commitments and recommitments for Christ. We celebrated a number of baptisms this past year on, on different occasions. But, but I have to be honest with you and say it's not enough. I'm excited that we're growing as a church, but, but I, 
I want to be a part of a church where more and more people are coming to know Jesus Christ. And so I'm praying that in this next year that God will just begin opening the doors more and more for life change right here at Genesis that will witness this life change in baptism. I want to invite you to be praying about that. I want to invite you as your connection group to be praying about that with us. Our staff, our elders are praying for this. We want to see people come to know Jesus Christ right here through our church. Now, that's the church that we're a part of. You know, we had 200 people participating in connection groups this past fall. I think that's an exciting number. I look forward to us doing more. Your financial gifts have enabled us to do more as a church. You know, the, the Celebrate offering that we've talked about, I know many of times back in October, we, you gave over $13,000 in, in an offering, kind of a last-minute deal. And we were able to take $3,500 of that and invest in a church plant in Indianapolis. We were able to take $3,500 back in October and invest it in a medical clinic that is completed and now being used this morning in Haiti. Is our God a visionary or what? that even in October he was preparing to use us to get a place ready to serve even this morning people in Haiti that are hurting right now. You know, at Christmas you gave $4,000 as a church to, to our partners in Haiti, to Nehemiah Vision Ministries. And, and as we explained to you, we were holding that money until our team went in a couple of weeks. Get this, last Sunday you as a church gave an additional $6,500 to the work that God is doing to make things right again in Haiti. So you as a church now have given over $10,000. We sent it all this week. It all went this week. It's being used. People are getting water to drink. They're getting food. They're getting medical supplies even this morning because of your Genesis gifts, our generous gifts. Now, here's the thing. Like mine, your personal investments may continue to take a beating. But if you're investing in the work that God is doing to make things right again through Genesis Church, it all adds up. It's on the increase. And I want to applaud you and thank you for your generosity. I mean, again, this is a generous church. And every gift counts. It all matters, whether it's a gift of $20 or $500. You know, and when you give, you're saying, God, I trust you. I want to be a part of your work. My investment here on earthly and on earth in earthly things is nothing compared to my investment in heaven. You know, this spring we're going to talk more and more about our future direction as a church. We're praying about God. What do the next ten years look like for us as a church? And we're going to be talking with you about how you can be praying with us, God. What do you want to do through me to help make room for more? Praise God for you. Um, you know, again, we look at this woman and we wonder why God chose her. Why the poor lady? But when you think about it, it's the same God who chose the shepherd boy to defeat the giant. It's the same God that chose the teenage girl to bring the Savior into the world. It's the same God that chose the little boy with the the lunch to feed the thousands. Why does God sometimes choose the underdog? It's simple. It's because he's God and he can do it. It's God and he can do it. He does it because he can. He can use any gift, any life, any person And he can use you and me if we're willing to give to him. Back to the story. This widow explains to Elijah that uh, she is just enough for herself and her son. Verse 13. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. You go home and do uh, as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something special or make something for yourself and your son. Now the key word here is the word first. It's the word first. Before you make something for yourself, Elijah says first. You know, it's an important word, especially in our understanding of Scripture. The principle in the Bible is known as the first fruits, that you bring your very first to God. It's kind of like what we, you know, we we don't give God the the first slice of pizza out of the box. 
our tendency is to finish the pizza and then, and then we peel off the extra cheese that is still kind of stuck to the box and that's the gift that we give to him. But Deuteronomy explains why we shouldn't do this, why we should give God to, give God to first, why, or give him to him first. Why? Because doing this will teach you to fear the Lord, to fear the Lord your God. It's about teaching that God comes first. You know, God, God asks us to give not because he wants our money. If God wanted our money, he would take every single bit of it. But he asks us to give because he knows that in doing so, it will teach us to put him first in our life so that we can be a part of what he's doing, about helping people find their way back to him through Jesus. You know, when it comes to giving, I have to give first. My, my wife and I, we give first because we know if it becomes the second gift or the third gift or the fifth gift or, or the sixth bill or whatever, you know, we're less likely to give. You know, your, your heart follows your gift. You know, my trust increases as I give to him. Verse 14, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, there will always be flour and oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops grow again. And so Elijah gives this woman a promise. As you give, God will continue to provide for all of your needs. You know, listen, if you trust him, God will always supply for you. He will take care of every need you have. And then finally, verses 15 and 16. It says, so she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her son continued to eat for many days. There was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. She trusted and God supplied. This morning, I want to ask our host team, to come, we're going to share in a time of communion together. As they come and you take the bread and you take the juice, I'm just going to ask you to hold it for a second. I'm going to talk to you for just about three or four more minutes, and then we're going to take communion together. I, I want you to see one more thing. Uh, four quick things that we learn about how God supplies, and then we're done. The first thing is that when it comes to God, when it comes to God as our supplier, as our provider, God supplies just enough. That's the promise that he offers to us. I mean, a key word in this story and in many other places in Scripture is the word daily. God provides daily. And it's his practice to provide just enough. I read about a church in China that was in poverty and they were cut off because of their faith. American churches tried to send aid, but the pastor refused. Here's what he said. The foreign churches would have robbed us of our anchor it is our financial need that drives us to our knees and forces us to cry out to him. I mean, can you believe it? I mean, what powerful words. God doesn't want our money. He wants our hearts. You know, this pastor here in China says we'd be better off poor because I can count on the fact that it'll drive us to our needs. The second thing that we learn about God as our supplier is that, that God will supply through you and me. God will help to meet the needs even in, this own, even in our own community through you and me. I mean, he's capable of sending a raven, but he usually sends people. George Barna is a researcher and spends a lot of time researching uh, the church today and the effects that church is having on culture. Uh, here, here, here's one statement that he makes recently. He says that about 8% of evangelical Christians, so we're talking 8 out of 100, give 10% of their offering today. 8%. Uh, we, we, we're right in that. We're right in that area. We might we might be doing a little bit better. Ron Sider, author of the book The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience, says, "If American Christians simply gave a tithe rather than the current one quarter tithe, 
there would be enough private Christian dollars to provide basic health care and education to the poor of the earth, and we would still have an extra 60 to $70 billion a year for evangelism around the world. I don't know about you, but that's a plan I get behind. Now, maybe God has supplied, but we aren't sharing like we're supposed to. The third thing, God supplies bread, not cake. You know, there are exceptions to this, but most of the time God is supplying the bread. He doesn't supply the cake. He doesn't supply the icing. You know, I'd suggest that you take cautions with sermon and teaching that, that promise that God wants you to be rich and that God wants you to be wealthy and I, because it's not true. And I realize that there are exceptions to this, but in fact, it gets even a little bit more uncomfortable than that. God wants some to be poor because like the rich young ruler, he understands that it is only the only way that he will have some hearts is by making them poor. Or perhaps like the church in China, he wants you to learn to be fully dependent on him to the point that it takes you to your knees. I mean, God will supply the bread, but I I can't promise cake. And the last thing is this, that God will supply after we trust. You know, the, the title of this sermon is that God supplies, we trust. But in reality, it's when we trust, God supplies that God is willing to provide, but it's our trust that unlocks His provision in our lives. It's true with money, but it's true with eternal life too. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes, whoever trusts in Him, will not perish, but will receive eternal life. We trust And God supplies. And that's the most important message that we could share with you this morning. We're going to take communion together right now as followers of Jesus. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and personal Savior, we invite you to celebrate with us right now as we reminded the greatest gift ever given to us in Jesus Christ. You hold in your hand a small cracker, a cup of juice. The the cracker, as the Bible teaches us, the bread is a symbol of of God's body broken for us. The greatest gift of all time was Jesus. Still the greatest gift today. And he came as a sacrificial offering for every single one of us. And Jesus said, he said, you know, this is my body. It's broken for you. And and when you eat it, I want you to remember me. I want you to remember what I've done. And then he said, the, the juice, you know, that we're holding in our hand right now, it's a symbol of my blood. And my blood, my body broken, the blood poured out as a a symbol of of the forgiveness of sins. I want to invite you as we wrap up this series, we, we think it would only be appropriate to just be reminded of the gift of the generosity of our God in heaven. And so you're in your own space right now. I want you to just take a moment and and you take the bread and, and take the juice and, and thank God for what he's done for you, the gift that he's given you in Jesus. Our God in heaven, as a church, as a community, as followers of Jesus, we just give you thanks right now for this great gift. It's a reminder of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us, the forgiveness and the life that he has given to every single one of us, a life that we won't earn one day when we arrive in heaven, but the life that is given to us right now, a life of hope, a life of faith, a life of trust. 
and we thank you for Jesus. And, and my prayer, God, is that we would be reminded of that today and our motivation to live for you, our, our motivation to live generously, our, our motivation to live sacrificially. I pray that that motivation comes in being reminded of what Jesus has done for us and that we would know, God, and we would realize, God, that as we give, we are giving you more and more of our life. We are giving you more and more of our heart. Would you give us that faith? Would you give us that trust that we need? God, I want to lift up the men and women in this room today, God, who, who, who realize that and even acknowledge and want to make a change in their life. They want to trust you more and more with their time and their talents and their treasures. They don't know where to begin. God, God would you find, help them find the way? Would you give them the faith? Would you give them the trust, God? And would you provide for their needs? And God, I want to pray for those here today who, who don't know you. They're not even sure they want to know you yet, but they're curious. God, would you keep working on their heart and in their life so that they may find you? God, you are everything that we need. Jesus is all we need. And that's the gift that we want to give to everyone as we live out our lives each day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.